Father, I thank you for your son. This morning we're talking about his return and we remember, Lord, that before he can come again, he had to come the first time, that he suffered and that he died for us and that we have found redemption in him. We give you praise for that, Lord. We give you praise for the fact that we've been bought back. We have been bought back off, off the, the blocks of the slavery of sin. The chains have been broken and we have been emancipated. We have been freed to go and to live lives where we can serve you, where we can know you, where we can pray to you, where we can draw close to you. And we want to do that again right now as we open your word. We want to draw close And so, Father, I pray that as we draw close to you, you would draw close to us, that the devil would flee, that he would have no part in the time that we're about to spend in your word, that he would not be able to distract, that we wouldn't think about the Super Bowl or the things we're going to eat later if we're even planning to watch it, uh, that we wouldn't think about what we're going to eat for lunch even or the things that we have to do this week, that right now we would just turn our minds off to the world and turn our minds on to your word, that we would be filled up that we might be able to serve you this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How often do you really think about Jesus coming back? Do you ever really just sit around longing for it, thinking about how great it's going to be, just really longing for it to happen, or praying that it would come about, that, that he would return? God wants us to think about it. He wants us to long for it. He wants us to think about it a lot more than a lot of us probably do. If you read the Bible, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is put in a place of prominence. In the New Testament, the second coming is described as our blessed hope in Titus 2. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second coming is our motivation to continue on in the faith in 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So remain in him because he is coming. And when he comes, you want to be standing there in confidence. You don't want to be found standing there in shame. In 1 John 3, one chapter later, the second coming is it's like a pathway to pure living. Where he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, meaning when he comes back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So as we hope in the second coming, that purifies our hearts because it motivates us toward godly living. And the Bible ends with this great expectation of his return in Revelation 22 when the word says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And of course, there's more than that, but we we do need to get into Luke 17 this morning. But we could stand here and we could read at least 
20 major texts from the New Testament that deal directly with Jesus' return. And so, yes, God wants you to be thinking about it. And again, probably a lot more than we tend to think about it. We, we think about things like, you know, the big game that's happening tonight. Or we think about, uh, you know, things that are going on at work. And we really hope that this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And, and we maybe hope that it's going to get a little warmer this year uh, sooner. You know, yesterday was nice. And we're like, maybe we could get a little more of those weirdo Virginia warm February days, right? So these are the sorts of things that tend to fill our mind. But a lot of times we don't really just stop and think about the fact that Jesus is going to come back and that we should be longing for this, yearning for this, praying for this. And so Jesus wants us to think about it, and he makes it clear here in Luke 17 uh, because he is telling his disciples how to think about it. The Pharisees have just questioned Jesus about the kingdom. They expected the Messiah to come and to overthrow the nations, including Rome, uh, to, to take the great oppressor of the Jewish people and cast them out. They expected him to make Jerusalem the center of the earth. And so they were looking at Jesus and going, so when are you going to do it? If you're supposedly the Messiah, when are you going to do these things? And Jesus, if you remember, responded by correcting their off-base understanding of the kingdom. And he told them, it's internal, right? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is inside of you. And its expansion is not going to be visible during the age of the church like that of an earthly kingdom because it is not taken acre by acre, it is taken soul by soul. As each soul is saved, the kingdom expands, the, the, the kingdom grows. As people repent of sin and they put their trust in Christ, the kingdom is growing. But one day the invisible kingdom will be made visible. And that will be the end of this world as we know it. And that is what Jesus is teaching about here, what it will be like when he returns. So I'm going to read for us, starting in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and, the li and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Six statements we can make from this text about the second coming this morning, uh, and I'll move through them fairly briefly. 
Uh, but number one, the second coming will be longed for by the church. It's the first thing we see in this passage. The second coming will be, should be, longed for by the church. You see it in verse 22 uh, when he says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So here's my basic understanding of the events surrounding the return of Jesus. Keep in mind, as I explain to you my understanding of these events, that the Bible that you have in your hands this morning is perfect. My interpretation is not. Before you send me any emails, your interpretation is not. Okay? Uh, we, we do not have infallible ter- interpretation of the Word of God, but the Word of God is infallible, is inerrant. So you might have a different view on the book of Revelation than I have come to understand, uh, but... Uh, you don't need to lose your mind about that. We can agree to disagree and still go to church together. In fact, there are four major views on the book of Revelation in the end times that are all totally orthodox, and you have uh, all good Bible-believing Christians believing uh, these different views on the book and on the end times. This summer, I'm going to teach through Revelation on Wednesday nights. So you'll have a whole three months to be mad at me, so you can save it till then if you want, okay? Uh, but here it is. Right now, we're living in the church age. This is the time in between the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, and ultimately his return. During this time, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God, is being preached, right? That's what we're doing right now. And Satan is not able to ultimately blind and deceive God's elect. God is going to save those that he's going to save, and the enemy is not going to be able to stop that. The church is going to suffer as she witnesses, as she goes about the work of being a witness, goes about being um, the the ambassadors for Christ, the, the mouthpieces that God is using in the world to get that saving message out there, to save his people, to redeem his people. The church will suffer as she goes about that business, but she will not be stopped. Because the power of the Spirit is greater than the power of Satan. And one day, Jesus will return, and that time for preaching and that time for repentance is going to draw to a close. It will be over. Believers and unbelievers will be resurrected, and then there will be a final judgment where all of the enemies of the church and everyone who has resisted Christ will be cast into eternal punishment. And all of God's people will be rescued, and the name of God will be vindicated, and they will dwell on the new earth with Christ forever. And in verse 22, Jesus says the days are coming when the disciples of Christ will long to see the days of the Son of Man, but they're not going to see it. Meaning, during the church age, we're going to keep looking to the heavens, and we're going to keep repeating those words from the end of the Bible, come Lord Jesus, but he will not come. It's not because he's incapable of coming. It's because it's not time yet. And even though we know Jesus isn't going to come back until the time appointed by the Father, we still long to see the days of the Son of Man. And that name, Son of Man, is an indicator to us as to why we want him to return. Son of Man is a title connected to the Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom. And you see it in Daniel chapter 7. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of, uh, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Son of Man is a term that emphasizes the humanity of Christ, the humanity of the Messiah, but it also at the same time says that the Son of Man is a human, right, fully human, and yet He has this unique power, this unique majesty that is matchless, that belongs to no one else. So the Messiah will be a man, fully God and fully man, but the Messiah will have dominion and glory and a kingdom that is superior to every kingdom ever erected by any man or woman in the history of the world. And all of their kingdoms will pass away, but the kingdom of the Son of Man does not. And the church longs for the Son of Man to come and to make His kingdom visible, to show His dominion to show His superiority. And we're eager to see it because we want to see the name of Christ get the honor that it is due. And we're eager to see it because we're eager to see the suffering of the church end. The church, we should be like the martyrs in Revelation 6 who cry out. It says there in verses 9 and 10, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. Talking about martyrs, people who died for their faith. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We long to see the name of Christ vindicated. We long to see the church suffer no more. And so we cry, Come, Lord Jesus. I think a lot of times we focus just on, Lord, come back and end the suffering, right? And and that's natural because we experience persecution as we go about being His witnesses. We experience suffering as we live in this fallen world. But don't lose track of the fact that you should also be longing for the vindication of the name of Jesus. You should be just as zealous for the name of God as you are for your own eternal peace and rest. We should be zealous to see every blasphemy, every accusation, every taunt that's ever been hurled at Jesus to be destroyed and cast into eternal flames. How often is this a part of your prayer life? How often do you pray and you ask God, Lord, vindicate your name? I think sometimes as believers, we can feel like our prayer life is getting kind of stale. It's like there's that old Keith Green song, my eyes are dry, my prayers are cold. And you might feel that way. You might feel like you got dry eyes and cold prayers. You might feel like your prayers just kind of bounce off the ceiling and just land right back at your feet. And what I would say to you, if, if, if you feel that way, is you should get the Bible out, study the Scriptures, find out what you're supposed to care about. 
Find out what you're supposed to be talking to God about. Find out what you're supposed to be longing for. And then start praying for those things. It will change the way you talk to God. And one of those things we often forget is we should be coming to God and saying to God, vindicate your name. As you read through the Psalms, the psalmists are so concerned about that. There's an entire genre of Psalms called imprecatory Psalms where the psalmists are praying and they're saying to God, vindicate your name. Pour out your wrath on sin. Sinners. Pour out your wrath on those who rebel against you. Pour out your wrath uh, on those who would try to defame you and who would try to disgrace you and would try to harm your name. And so we should open up to those psalms and we should pray as the psalmist prayed. Pray for the vindication of the name of God. We should long for the second coming, that his name would be vindicated, that the church would suffer no more. Number two. The second coming is long for the, by the church. Number two, the second coming will be seen by everyone. Everybody's going to see it. You see this in verses 23 and 24. He says when he returns, it's going to be like lightning racing across the sky in the middle of a thunderstorm. Right? That, that's a little bit different than the first coming, isn't it? In, in the first coming, it was quiet. It, it was in obscurity. In a place nobody ever would have expected. In a town nobody would have expected him to be born in unless they had read the prophets, right? And then in a place in that town that nobody would have expected the Son of Man to be born in. You could even say it was scandalous. But in his second coming, it's not going to be quiet. He's going to come like a thunderbolt. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be undeniable. It's going to be breathtaking. And it's going to be clearly visible to everybody. Jesus gives some additional insight in Matthew on what's going to happen to nature itself when he returns. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. If, if that sounds familiar to you, because it's so much of what Jesus says there is straight out of that Daniel 7 passage that we just read. Everybody's going to see these things occurring. Revelation 1 verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. There's going to be false teachers who say otherwise. They will try to say that he's already come. They will try to, to point here and there. Or they'll try to give you some date that they say that he's going to return. And Jesus says to us, don't run after these people. Don't believe what they have to say. Don't, don't veer off of the path of orthodox faith chasing myths and conspiracies that are being thrown out by charlatans who are eager to gain followers on social media and sell books. Don't worry that you're going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. It's not going to be a secret. If anybody comes along and says to you, well, Jesus actually already returned, secretly returned in the heavens. You know, there, there is a, uh, a I, I call it a cult out there that believes that. Seventh-day Adventism believes that. And so, listen, uh, when people come along saying those things, you can just stop them right there and say, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, everybody's going to see it. It's going to be undeniable. Nobody's going to miss it. It's not going to be a secret. 
Number three, the second coming can only occur after the first coming. You see this in verse 25. Not a very deep theological point, I recognize, right? He can't come again until he has come. Might seem self-explanatory, but this is a really important point because it is a reminder of the entirety of the work of Christ to redeem us. Before Jesus could come in the clouds in glory, he had to die on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Before he could return at the appointed time, he had to suffer and die at the appointed time. It's why he says here, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his own generation. Jesus talks a lot about his generation in the book of Luke, and it's not positive. In Luke 9, verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? In Luke 11, verse 29, as the crowds are increasing, he says, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In Luke 11, we heard him say this, So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. One of the saddest realities in the history of the earth is that the Jewish people, who were contemporaries of Christ, rejected him, And they placed him in the hands of the Roman government for capital punishment to be executed. They took the Messiah that they had been waiting for and longing for. And they turned him over to the very people that they were so desperate to see him overthrow. Peter tells them as much in Acts 2. As he's preaching the first sermon after the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what you see there is that it was God's plan for his son to be given up and to die in this way, to die in the place of sinners, to suffer in our place, to suffer for me and you as our substitute. It was God's plan, but there is still sin on the hands of those who crucified and killed Him. But there's a larger point to be made here, I think, which is that the order of things in Jesus' life tells us a bit about what our Christian life will look like as we follow him. Because for Jesus, before there is going to be glory, there had to be suffering. Before there is going to be peace in his kingdom, there had to be pain at Calvary. That isn't to say that life is nothing but suffering, right? There, there are so many times that we are just happy. We, we, we get these moments in life where God just blesses us with pure, unadulterated joy, and we can say, in this moment, I really have no cares, and I'm just happy, right? You can think back to some of those moments, but we know that there is also a lot of suffering, plenty of suffering for us to endure in this life. And the promise is that after suffering comes glory. The promise is that if you suffer with Him, you will reign with Him. 
And so the Bible tells us, don't be surprised when trials of various kinds come upon you. Don't be surprised because when you look at the life of the one who is the model for our lives, the one who we are walking behind in this parade of discipleship, well, before he could come again, he had to be born in a lowly stable and he had to die on a rugged cross. It was cross before glory. It won't be different for us. But glory will come. And our glory will be a share of the inheritance of the Son of Man. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that when you take the eternal weight of glory, that share of inheritance that we have with the Son of Man, and you compare it with our suffering, our suffering looks like light, momentary affliction. And for some of you this morning, what you're walking through in your life and how heavy it is, if that's light, just think how great glory is going to be. It's going to be awesome. Second coming will be longed for by the church. It will be seen by everyone. It can only occur after the first coming. Number four, the second coming will be unexpected. It won't be unexpected in the sense that God's Word has told us about it, right? But it will be unexpected in its timing, particularly for the people in the world who don't know the Lord. And Jesus gives two parallels from biblical history here to explain how the second coming will not be expected. He talks about Lot and he talks about Noah. And there's three features of Noah's generation and Lot's generation that mirror the way things will be when Jesus comes back. Number one, people will be indifferent. In the days of Noah, Jesus says people were eating and they were drinking, they were marrying and they were being given in marriage. In the days of Lot, they were also eating and drinking. That's what humans do. There's never been a time that we haven't been eating and drinking, right? Buying and selling, planting and building. And you go, well, this just sounds like normal life, right? That, that just sounds like a week. Drinking, marrying, be given in marriage, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. That's just what we do. That's exactly right. That's the point. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Everybody's going to be going about their lives as if everything is fine, as if there's no consequences for sinful living. They'll be indifferent to the Lord, and then He's going to come back and there's going to be judgment. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man, He says. In the time of His return, people are going to just be um, going to the store. They're going to be taking their kids to Little League practice. They're going to be attending a wedding on the weekend. They're going to be going on vacation in the summer. They're going to be making their plans. The last thing on their mind is going to be that the skies are going to crack open and the Son of Man is going to be there. The church is looking at the, the skies and we're saying, come Lord Jesus, come. But the world is not looking. They just keep going about their lives. So they'll be indifferent. Number two, people are going to be wicked. Why were the indifferent people of Noah and Lot's generation judged? Well, in Noah's case, it's because the sin in the world had stacked up to the point that the Bible says this about its offense toward God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So not only did they do evil things, but they just thought about evil things all the time. And that even when they had the intentions to do something that might appear good on the surface, if you were to just dig down underneath and look at the roots, then you would see that it was all rooted in, in prideful, 
uh, sort of self-aggrandizing sinfulness. It was all about their own ego. It was all about erecting themselves as being bigger and better and more authoritative and more in control and superior to the Lord. In Lot's case, the city that he lived in was so associated with sexual sin that it came to, uh, the name of the city came to refer to homosexual sin, right? Sodomy comes from the, the city name Sodom. In Genesis 19, the people are so evil, they attempt to rape two angels that are sent to rescue Lot and his family. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. The world is still steeped in wickedness. Right now, there are five million people in this world trapped in the sex slave industry. Five million people, most of them women, trapped in the sex slave industry as we just stand here this morning. Last year, there were 5,000 more murders in the United States than there were the year before. A report came out this past November that after decades of decline and when, when it came to the numbers uh, regarding abortion, that those numbers are now on the rise for the first time in decades in the United States. So what we're being told is, hey, you're progressing as a society. We're getting better. That all of our technology and all of our book smarts and everything that we've learned, not to say that education's not good, it is good. Because then we can't, we can't look at these things and diagnose it, right, unless uh, we learn. But what we're being told is that because we have all these things, man, you just kick God out. We don't need God anymore. Right? We don't need religion anymore. Religion is it's a relic of the past. We, we are too evolved. We're too progressed to have to need something that is so archaic. It sounds to me that with all of our progression, we are just like the generations of Noah and Lot. What has changed? In fact, I would say that now the sin is televised. Right? Every, everything sinful that happens in the world seems like it shows up on social media for us to see. And so now it's even more undeniable just how evil humanity is. Lastly, people will experience sudden judgment just like they did in the days of Lot and Noah. In Noah's case, they were going about their business. They were thinking God would not judge. He opened up the skies. He opened up the ground. And water covered the earth. An entire generation of humanity perished in the floods of God's wrath. I remember there was a movie that came out that had Steve Carell from The Office in it, and uh, it was, I think it was called Evan Almighty. And it was basically like modern-day Noah. And uh, my associate pastor, when I worked at Old Powhatan Baptist Church, Jeff Beard, who came here and preached a couple months ago. Jeff's a very serious man about the Lord, and, and I love him for it. And so I remember he came into our young adults class uh, back in like 2006 at that church, and he said, you know, what did everybody do this weekend? And one of the class uh, members just piped up, not thinking they were talking to Jeff, and they go, no, I saw Evan Almighty. It was so funny. And he was like, oh, that, that day where, where God poured out his wrath through water and wiped out an entire generation of humanity for their sin, is that comical to you? And we were all just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what do you say to that? Yeah, but, 
But seriously, you go to like a Christian bookstore. We don't really have those anymore. Everything's online. But back when we had Christian bookstores, brick and mortar, you go in and they got the little Noah's Ark, um, you know, toy that you put in the bathtub and everything. And as you read it in storybook Bibles, there's a giraffe like waving out of the window. And, and, and what you don't see, what's not talked about enough, is the fact that it was God's wrath being poured out on the sin of humanity and that there were an entire generation of humanity, not of one nation, of humanity that perished. It is one of the darkest days in human history. Maybe only beaten by the day that the Son of God was crucified and killed as the sinless Savior. In Lot's case, they were going about their business thinking God was slack, that there was no consequences, and he poured out fire from heaven. And again, an entire generation of Sodom died in the flames of God's justice. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. That people are going to think that the promises about Jesus' return are going to remain unfulfilled forever, that, that uh, he's not going to come back. They might even mock us as Christians for believing such ridiculous things. Or they think that those promises will remain unfulfilled long enough for them to repent. I'll do it later in life. And then they're going to find out they're wrong when Christ appears in the clouds with his robe dipped in blood going by the name, the Word of God. And they will perish in his judgment if they have not bowed to him as Lord. And it will be unexpected, but it's going to happen, and so we better be ready. Two more statements about the second coming and then we'll be done. Number five, the second coming is going to expose the condition of the heart. If you think you've been hiding from God and you think you've been fooling everybody about what's going on in your heart, when the second coming happens, what's really going on in your heart is going to be revealed. It's going to be exposed. What you love with all your heart is going to be exposed. And Jesus illustrates this uh, here in verse 31. If he returns and somebody's on the housetop and they go, their first thought is, Jesus is coming back. i got to go and get my things. Well, what's happened is the, the revealing of the Son of Man has revealed in your heart a materialism, an idolatry where you love things more than you love Him. Judgment's about to fall. There's no need to try to salvage your TV and your favorite pair of pants. You know what I mean? But if that's your inclination then there is a love of the things of the world in you that's been exposed. So if, if you ever just want a simple Bible verse to remember that you need to let go of the world and that you need to cling to God, then here is one in verse 32. If you've ever said, if you're like me, I really struggle with, with Scripture memorization. It's something I've always struggled with. It's just not something I've ever been really good at. No one's got an excuse on this verse. Look at verse 32. Three words to remember. Remember Lot's wife. That's the verse. And I love that. It's so simple, but it's such a great warning. So if you don't remember what happened to her, uh, Lot's whole family had been warned as they were fleeing Sodom, do not look back. Right? If they looked back, or if they tried to hide in the valley, or if they tried to run for the mountains, they would be swept away. But she ignored the warning. She looked back and she has turned to a pillar of salt on the spot. And so Jesus is saying here, remember Lot's wife. As the Son of Man is returning, don't be looking back. Right? Don't look back at the things of the world. Don't look back at the life you've had. 
No, look, look to Christ. Don't try to save your own life. Don't come right up to the brink of salvation like Lot's wife did and decide you're going to take matters into your own hands, try to justify yourself, try to save yourself. Repent and give your life to Jesus now because in doing that, then you are going to find your life is saved when He appears in glory. Which is exactly what he is getting at in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, whoever tries to go about their own plan of salvation, will lose their life. But if you lose your life, you'll keep it. If you surrender your life, if you yield your life, if you lay it down before the Lord and say it belongs to you, well then you will keep it. So repent and give your life to Jesus. Don't try to save yourself. And every day if you wake up, and you were tempted to try to take your life into your own hands and to go about trying to save your own soul, then you need to remember Luke 17.32. Remember Lot's wife. And then put all your hope in Jesus and pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And then the final statement from the passage here in verses 34, and 30, uh, 34 through 37, the second coming is going to div- uh, permanently divide humanity. It will permanently divide humanity. Jesus says, in that night. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about when he returns. That is what he's talking about. There's going to be two in bed in that night. One's going to be taken, the other's going to be left. There's going to be two women who've gotten up early. They've beaten the sun. and They're grinding. Suddenly, one will be taken, and the other will be left. A lot of people have used these verses to teach about a rapture occurring prior to Jesus' return. But uh, I would argue that this is not talking about that. This is talking about the final judgment. And even those who would preach the doctrine of the rapture, um, if they've studied their Bibles well, would agree with that. That this is not about that. This is about the final judgment. And I know we're tight on time, but let me show you why. Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's a parallel passage to Luke 17. And Jesus does the same thing there that He does here. He connects it to judgment. Right? In our text, it's connected to, to the judgment of Sodom and Lot's generation. It's connected to the judgment of the entire world and Noah's generation. And here, He connects it to uh, the judgment that came in Noah's generation. And so in two different places, He's connecting His words to judgment. We shouldn't try to disconnect them and making something that it isn't. Even if the language in the text sounds like a popular book series by Tim LaHaye. What Jesus is explaining here is that when judgment occurs, when He returns and judgment occurs, there will be people who are as close as you possibly could be on the earth who will be permanently divided forever because one follows Him and one does not follow Him. One has a substitute who took the punishment for their sin, one does not. One has a mediator in Christ 
One does not. One is in Jesus' sheepfold. One is not. Therefore, one is taken and one is left. And the disciples are so intrigued by this and probably alarmed that they say, where, Lord? It says one will be taken and the other left. Where are they going to be taken? And just to drive home the point that Jesus is talking about judgment here, he issues some of his darkest words in all four of the Gospels. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Vultures are death birds. If you're laying on the ground and you're not feeling so hot and you look up and see some vultures, the jig is up. You're in a bad situation, right? If something's dead on the ground, the vultures circle. And what Jesus is saying here is it's not going to be a specific location. This is a global event. So wherever you find vultures circling the bodies, that's where my judgment has occurred. Like I said, some of the darkest words he issues in all four of the Gospels. What's implied here is that it's going to happen all over the world. Every nation is going to have believers rescued in Christ's return, and every nation is going to have corpses on the ground from his judgment. It's about as sobering as it gets. It's reminiscent of Revelation 19 where there are two meals. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, For all of the family of God who have been brought to the table of eternal glory by the blood of Christ. And then in that same chapter, there's the meal in which the ravens gather to eat the flesh off of the bones of the defeated enemies of Christ. I know which meal I want to be at. And I know which meal I don't want to be at. Let me close with this. In 1939, King George VI, I know I've been, I didn't mean to talk about the British monarchy two weeks in a row, it just happens. I'm not like on a kick or something. But in 1939, King George VI came to the United States. It was the first time a reigning British monarch visited our country. And so a lot of preparations were put into place. Even one meal that was eaten in Washington, D.C. Just listen to this one meal and think of the preparation for this one meal. They had a clam cocktail, calf's head soup. That does not sound good to me, but, you know, I don't know. I guess it's something people eat. Terrapin, cornbread, cranberry sauce, peas, buttered beets, sweet potato cones, frozen cheese, crest salad, maple and almond ice cream, pound cake, and coffee. One meal. Quite a meal. There were etiquette classes that American politicians had to attend so that we barbaric Americans could learn the proper way to interact with the crown. There was tons of security on the streets because thousands of people were gathering trying to get a glimpse of the king. The marine band followed him everywhere that he went and played music, and there was an honor guard for him. There were meetings with all these sorts of important people and dignitaries that were set up. He gave multiple speeches in certain places, and everywhere he gave a speech, there was a giant crowd, and there was tons of preparations that had to be made. He went on multiple tours while he was here that were all arranged systematically so that he could see different sites. Why did they do all of this? Because when the king is coming, you get ready. That's why. So what are you doing to get ready for the coming of the king this morning? Because what we've seen today is Jesus is coming back. Now, does that strike fear into your heart? 
When you hear that, does it strike fear into your heart? Is, is there this thing in you that goes, no, I'm not ready for that? If that's the case, then I would urge you to examine yourself. Examine yourself and, and, and be sure that you're actually in the faith. Ask yourself if you're really prepared for the king. And if you don't know what that preparation looks like, verse 33 told you this morning already, lose your life to keep it. You want to get ready for the king? Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. Confess Him as Lord. Ask Him to forgive you. Trust in His saving work. Become a child of God. Remember Lot's wife and don't look back. That's how you get ready. And then you go, part of the gospel transformation that takes place is you go from fearing and dreading the judgment of God, dreading the return of Christ, to going, I'm ready, I'm longing for it, I want it, I desire it. And so that's my question for you if you're a believer this morning. Do you long for it? Do you long to see His name vindicated? Do you long for the rest He's going to bring you forever? then maybe we should end our day the same way that God ended his Bible. Maybe every day we ought to go to bed saying, Come, Lord Jesus. And I want you to understand, and it could be our generation, right? In this church right now, we got, we got four generations here. I'm going to call them one generation, all right? It could be our generation that sees the return of Christ. But make no mistake, there's going to be a time where the church is praying, come Lord Jesus, come. And He's going to come. It's going to happen. Make sure that you are ready. Let's pray. Father God, where would we be this morning without the promises that we've seen in these Scriptures? They are promises without a doubt that could cause us to fear if we don't know You. In fact, Lord, I pray that if there are people here that don't know you and they're listening to this or they're on the live stream and they're listening to this this morning, I pray they do have fear. I pray they're not indifferent. I pray they don't hear this and go back to, back to planting and, and building and, and shopping and marrying and being giving in marriage and just doing all the stuff I do. Father, I pray that there would be a real reckoning this morning, a real a moment of stopping and thinking and considering the reality of Jesus returning, and that if there is fear and dread, that it would not be worldly sorrow where there is just a, a, a potential uh, fear about the consequences of sin, but I pray it would be more than that. I pray there would be a godly sorrow where people realize in their hearts, I've hurt God. That when He comes back, the reason I'll be judged is because I've hurt him. I've made myself an enemy of him. And that godly sorrow would lead them to repentance that would save their souls and, and that would give them eternal life. And for brothers and sisters in the room, Lord, that know you, I just pray that we would become more intentional, Father, about really longing for you to come back, Jesus. That we would become uh, more intentional about keeping the second coming before our eyes. That we would think about it, pray about it, talk about it, read about it. And that we would constantly, Lord, 
Speak the words we see at the end of the scriptures this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And so, Father, we lift this up to you and, and pray that you would do your work wherever people are at this morning, across a spectrum from, from indifference to total devotion, Lord. Do your work in their hearts. Transform us with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.